Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you all. For me, this is a great privilege and a pleasure to be able to share some of God's truth through His Word to you this morning. This is, we are talking about Advent. This is the third week of Advent. What is Advent? Well, for some, it's a time of waiting, kind of pending some kind of an arrival. Well, we as Christians celebrate the four weeks prior to the birth of Christ, and in this we celebrate four different themes. We celebrate joy, peace, hope, and love. And this morning's message is going to focus on the hope, because it's the only of those four themes that we have nothing to do with. We cannot claim any part of the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. You can have a little bit of peace in your life, not peace as Jesus gives it, but you can find some peace and love. Yes, we can love one another, not that agape love of the Father, but we can love. And of course, we can rejoice at a level and we can find great happiness. But hope, the hope we have in Christ comes only from hope. We cannot create our own hope. Now, also, we must remember that the Advent is not the time that we're awaiting, but is the actual arrival. It comes from an old ancient Latin word, ad meaning to, and vent meaning come. So, what is to come? In the Christmas context, of course, we're speaking of the arrival of both a man and a miraculous event, a promise he has been given and he has given to save, to rescue. That's what we're waiting for. Now, in the, Greek, or in the Hebrew, this word Messiah means the anointed one of God. That's somebody who's consecrated, set apart as holy, someone very special. And when it's translated into the Greek, it becomes Christos. And then when we translate Christos into English, it becomes Christ. That's the same word for Messiah. Now, this Messiah was prophesied to come as one who was going to rescue his people. He was going to be a prophet, and he was going to be a savior. Moses foretold of this when he told the people of Israel that one was to come, would be raised by God, would be from their people, and would be like him. Now, as I say, Christos, Christ, if you are a follower and a believer in Jesus as Christ, then you should be waiting for our Advent. And I say our Advent because actually this is the second Advent. The second Advent. The first has already come and gone by. So since this is waiting period for the second Advent, how do we know that this is actually going to come about? Is this really a possibility, or is it just the continuation of a lovely old story? Well, 
we can be assured that this is going to happen, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We are going to address this question, but first, we have to look at that first advent. We can't understand the second advent until we understand the first advent. So we're going to look at some of God's prophecy about that first one and its fulfillment in the New Testament. This evidence is going to enable an, or an appreciation on our part for the truth of God's Word and His plan as it unfolds day by day, but it will also enable us to see and appreciate and actually to completely have a faith in this second advent. Yes, this second advent now becomes our hope. The first advent was the hope of the people back in the time of Jesus. The freedom from Rome and all the oppression. This was their hope. Their Savior was going to come and save them. Well, he is still our hope. He is still our Savior, and he's going to come and save us. Now, can we just trust in the first advent as sufficient evidence for the second advent? To that I would say no. I believe that the first advent's intent was certainly not as evidence for a second one. Rather, it is the description of a mission. Listen to the words of Jesus himself here from Matthew. Listen to these words and think about it. And he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and be a ransom, give his life as a ransom for many. That doesn't sound like evidence. It sounds like a mission. So we're going to need something else besides evidence for this second advent. So I'm going to begin with just a couple of many, many facts that surround this first advent. Bear in mind that we are focusing on the hope portion of this. As we saw this morning, we heard hope. It's, it's there. Spurgeon spoke about hope. Hope is really so important to us, and it is unique only to the Christian faith. There is no other faith system on this planet that has hope. Only we have hope. This waiting or hoping, if you will, for the first advent lasted thousands of years. It was a long time in the coming, and it was foretold in several places in our Bible. The advent hope is first found in a word picture, and we're going to see that in Genesis 3.15. And we know that the story, this is after the fall, and God is speaking to ser ser the serpent, Satan. And he says, he will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's a word picture. We're going to see later on in the message that it's far more than just a word picture. And that word picture, picture quickly develops as we go to Genesis 12, verse 3, and here it develops into a covenant with Abraham. 
And with this covenant, this legal agreement or contract between Abraham and God, we find a promise. A promise is made. And if we could bring that next slide up. Ah, and in this promise, God tells him that he, out of his loins, will come a seed for all the families that's going to bless all the families of the world. Remember that. All the families of the world are going to be blessed through this seed. And then we can find the start of the fulfillment of that here, and we'll see on the next slide, in Peter in his second sermon. They can bring that up. Okay. He's talking to the Hebrews and to the Greeks. They're all there. This is after Christ has died and ascended. And he says, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham. So he's bringing this Abrahamic covenant right out, and they all know exactly what he's talking about. And he says to Abraham, and with your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now look what Peter says, having raised up his servant, ah, sent him to you first to bless you, the blessing to all the families, here it is, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There is the blessing, and it's starting to be fulfilled right there. Now, if we go on, God continues this human pathway using a bloodline, the bloodline of Abraham. And he takes that rolling covenant. It rolls and it rolls and it goes through this bloodline of Abraham, this promised hope to come, and it goes through his son Isaac, and it goes through Isaac's son Jacob, and through Jacob's son Judah, an important key, and it continues on and it comes up to Jesse the father of King David, and goes through David and then through his son Solomon, who ultimately builds the temple. And it continues generation after generation, faithfully following right up until we see Christ. All of this can be confirmed in two, two genealogies we have in the New Testament. The first is found in the first chapter of Matthew, and it agrees perfectly with one from the Old Testament found in First Chronicles. But... There is a second genealogy. We find this in Luke's gospel in chapter 3. Now, both of them provide evidence of this bloodline coming forth and bringing with it this hope of an advent. But there's some very major differences between the two of them. Now, we always say, oh, these genealogies, and we skip them. Don't skip them. Look at them. They are critical for understanding prophecy and fulfillment. Luke's, for example, has 16 more names than Matthew's. Did you know that? 16 more names. And why is that? Because Dr. Luke, he trances it all the way back to God. He doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to the source. So why am I mentioning this? Well, for evidence to be of any value to us, to help us build our trust, it has to be real. It has to be true. It must be accurate. Well, what's found in Luke's geology, a genealogy, 
many scholars believe, and I agree with them, listen to this, may well be Mary's bloodline, not Joseph's. Oh, who knew, right? They are very similar, but there are some key differences. One of those is the purpose. They were done for very different purposes. Matthew is a Hebrew. He writes his knowing that his audience are going to be Jews. They will understand. So his goes from Abraham, and he wants to tie Abraham's agreement, contract with God, the covenant, to the promise and then to its fulfillment. So the Jewish people would see that Jesus is the, the Messiah. They would get this. Luke, Dr. Luke, on the other hand, is not a Hebrew, and he's going in a different direction, literally. His traces in the opposite direction. He goes from Jesus all the way back to God. Now, there's some other interesting differences here. This, uh, in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, in that particular genealogy, we find it is the blood or biological genealogy. And yet Luke's, we're going to find, is more of a bloodline, more of a legal document. That's how Luke constructs it, okay? And there's a reason for that. You're going to find that their word of and by are used very differently in them. We're going to see in Luke's, in the Greek, not in our English translations, but in the Greek, there is no son. When it says son of, son of, son of, son is eliminated in the Greek. The original didn't have it. Only of, of, of. And this is to show, Luke wanted to show that just as Adam is not the literal son of God, but was created by God, so Jesus is not the literal son of Joseph, but is sent by God. This was very important to Dr. Luke to get that. Of course, this is all under the Spirit's inspiration. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what he's doing. Now, also listen to this. Luke's version, the article, the word the, okay, is omitted before the name of Joseph only. Every other name in the list has this toot. It's toot, pronounced toot. And it's, the, it's to personify. When you say a tree, it's a tree. But when you say the tree, it becomes special. And they used that in the Greek language before a name. So if your father's name was William, you were of the William or Ezekiel, of the Ezekiel. But strangely, every name has that except for Joseph's. And the reason for this is it then allows, and if we go to the next slide here, right here, look at this. When he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed that is a parenthetical statement because the, uh, this the is missing. It's an explanation of why 
Joseph's name is even there. It doesn't belong there. And we'll see that in a minute. Because Joseph is not of, of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is not of Joseph. He is by God. So all these strange little differences are very important, okay? It's left out. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. There are two Eli's in these genealogies, both quite close to the end near where Jesus is. Two Eli's. The first one, and this is according to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he is recorded as saying that Joseph's uh, mother first married a man named Eli. And they were married for some time, had children, but no sons. No sons were born of the marriage, and Eli died. So as Jewish tradition calls for, and we know this is true, the kinsman redeemer, redeemer, right out of Ruth, Boaz, Ruth, okay, right out of kinsman redeemer kicks in. So Eli, now passed, his brother Jacob steps in dutifully, marries Joseph's now widowed mother, and Joseph comes. But his real biological father is this man named Jacob, not Eli. Eli technically is now his uncle. That's strange. But the other Eli, that happens to be the father of Mary. That was his name, Eli. So what we see here, again, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, is Luke is recording the bloodline, the legal and custom one, not the actual biological. So Jacob doesn't appear in Luke's. It says Eli, and it's not his uncle Eli, it's Mary's father Eli. Now, why would this be there? Well, Jewish custom would not allow a woman's name to be in a bloodline in a record. So it's her father's name who's there representing her bloodline, which makes perfect sense, both culturally, but it also answers the question. If you look at those things, and that's why I said it's important to look at these, towards the end, close to Jesus, the names are all different. What's going on? Was Luke wrong? No. Was Matthew wrong? No. They were tracing the same bloodline, but through different families. Now, why is all this going on? I mean, it's a very convoluted history. What's the purpose? To remain faithful to the promise that God made to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through his seed, singular, which is the same as the woman's seed from 315, singular, and since Joseph, none of his blood is in Jesus, we have a problem. We have a big problem. Prophecy can't be fulfilled. And yet, when we go to the other side, his birth mother, Mary, there's the blood connection, and Luke's genealogy shows she is legitimately connected to the bloodline of Abraham, all the same, right up through David, all of this out of the house of David, all of that is maintained right up to the end, 
And yet we see that is her bloodline represented by her father's name and therefore prophecy is fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit doesn't miss a trick. Now, God also foretold through the prophet Isaiah many, many things about both the birth and the death of this coming Messiah. We know that he said something about a virgin birth. That's pretty unique. He also spoke about this Messiah coming out of the loins of King David and his father Jesse before him in this line. And we saw and learned all of that in that wonderful sermon of Stephen's a couple of weeks ago from the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And then, of course, there's the 53rd chapter where we learn of the hideous suffering our Messiah endured for us. Now, for the sake of time and space, I didn't get into all of that. The scriptures, it's just too much. But we all know from both the birth and the crucifixion accounts the fulfillment of all of these things. But there are a couple of particularly interesting details in Psalm 22, verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, this wasn't 750 years before Jesus. It was only 600 years before Jesus came. Okay. Amazing details such as the piercing of nails of his hands and feet. Now, why is this unique? Well, historically, a man or a woman being crucified almost never had nails. That is just, it was almost totally unheard of. There's like one or two records outside of the Bible where it's mentioned. It was always, like the movies, they were tied up there. The human body's weight is so much that a nail might not work, so they would tie them. But there were a couple of occasions where people were literally nailed to the cross. So we look in all the, all the crucifixion accounts. All it says is he was crucified. It doesn't say nailed. We have to go to the account in John's Gospel in the upper room. And you recall Jesus appeared, all the windows and doors were locked, and Jesus appeared among them, peace, and they were stunned. This is their first time seeing him risen. Now, they are stunned, the windows are locked, the doors are locked, and he appears, and he he, he tells them things, and he tells them to be calm, and then he goes away. But one of them was missing. Didymus, the famous doubting Thomas. He wasn't there, as we know. And then he returns later, and they are just going crazy, telling him we saw the Savior, he's alive. And he's like, no, I can't believe that. I can't believe that unless, and he goes on here, they have, well, if we look here, count all, no, no, go back, it should be in the one before. It should have his actual scripture there in John's gospel. And it talks, he says, I won't believe this unless I see the imprints left by the nails. Now, these guys were there when it happened. Many of them witnessed it happening. They knew what happened. And in the original Greek text, the word elon which is the word for nail, and it only means nail, period, is there. So 
Doubting Thomas says and gives us the evidence that confirms what was foretold 600 years before that was so unusual, Jesus was literally nailed to that cross. And then there's also the casting of lots and the dividing up. And we see that being fulfilled, as it says here, if we can move on to the next slide now. There we are. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. But there was that one part that couldn't be, the tunic that couldn't be divided. So they decided to cast lots for it. How can you miss details like that 600 years before? It's just amazing. And it's fulfilled right there in John 19, 23, and 4. Now, much of this information so far has been about the man, the Messiah man, Jesus. But what about the mission of this Messiah? The mission to be a savior for his people, a promise of God. Well, let's go back to Genesis 3.15 in our minds. It said there about the bruising of the heel, the crushing of the head, as some translations put it. That, that's the mission. And we will find that mission more clearly and much more simply defined in 1 John. Okay, it's right there in John's little ditty there in the back. It's chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's the mission, simple and plain. And then, if we move on, we will find the start of the fulfillment, the actual fulfillment of that very work. Look at this. That's going to be found on John 19, verse 30. And I think they, they should have that slide there. Yeah, okay. Now, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. We heard that earlier this morning in the song. It is finished. Isn't that the song we sang? But you know, it's one word, one single Greek word that Jesus, and he didn't whisper this. He didn't croak it. He bellowed it from the cross. Even in the translation, there's an exclamation point. The Greek word is tetelestai. And uniquely, it has two meanings, an equally unique both of the meanings were intended by Jesus because both of them apply. Certainly, the literal translation is what we see in our Bibles, what that song is about. It is finished. The work. I've defeated death. The work is done. Devil's work is done. I've defeated it. But it also was a word that was used if you owed money and you couldn't pay it, you went to debtor's prison in those days. And when you had worked off your debt and it was paid, they would give you a release paper with some information, your name, time, where you served. And then they would stamp a single word, tetelestai, which said the debt is paid in full. Paid in full. And when you think of Christ, what was he saying on that cross? Yes, the task. The task is finished. The mission is complete. But... When we sin, we create a huge debt to our Lord. 
God. We owe God a debt. And he was saying also that the debt of mankind's sin is now fully paid. One word, the fulfillment. Now let's move to the second advent. Similarly, this second advent goes on for thousands of years. It's been about 2,000 so far. And it's also similarly, this second advent was prophesied about in Scripture. But neither of these advents had a date stamp. So knowing that the first advent is behind us, we have to take the second advent and wait patiently, confidently. And what do I mean by that? Well, our only concern should be with when he comes back, not if. So when we trust and in faith wait, it's not if, only when. But the sad reality of this long waiting period for many people has led them to a very failed and misunderstanding of the advent and of Christ himself, that he had a abysmally failed ministry and that he was unreliable and therefore he won't be coming back. But this simply is not true. Jesus' mission, just like the very meaning of his name, was to save his people. But who are his people? From or for whom did Jesus and his ministry apply? Well, if we look in the book of Acts, right up front we're going to see that early on it appeared that Israel was the sole benefactor. It tells us that early on even 3,000 people came to faith in Christ after Peter's first sermon. But God had his own different plan, which included others outside of Israel, and there were other forms of evidence. The covenant from Abraham himself. It said not unique people would be blessed, all the families of the world would be blessed. So there's a hint. And how about when the angels showed up? Tidings of great joy for all. Oh, and then what about that older man, Simeon? You all familiar with Simeon? The old guy that was in the temple faithfully, the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had actually told him, you will not die, Simeon. You will not leave this earth until you have laid your eyes on the Messiah. So faithfully, every time, he is in that temple waiting. And in walks Joseph and Mary, and they have the baby Jesus. And inside Simeon, the Holy Spirit goes, eh, eh, that's the one. He's right there. Simeon goes over, carefully takes the child, lifts him and praises God, and says, this is the consolation of Israel. Thank you, Lord. Now I can depart from this world. You've let me see my eyes upon your Messiah. And then he says something remarkable. He says, this Messiah will be a light of revelation for the Gentiles and an honor to Israel. But it took a while. And it wasn't for Paul and Peter until each of them had a dream recorded in Acts. Different dreams, but the same content. That this coming Messiah, this advent for them, applied to all as does our Advent today. Now, 
Listen to this. This fact leaves us here that faith, fact has to go away. The evidence doesn't matter now. That's the first advent. We're into the second advent, and it's only by faith we can move forward. Faith is critical to this. Now, Jesus' mission was to save his people, but not everyone is going to be saved. That's tragic, but it's a reality. Jesus said it. He knows it. It's several places in the Bible that not all are going to be saved. Not that all would want. God said that not one would perish. That's his will, desired will. But the ultimate outcome, not all will be saved. How is that possible? Let's go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, all, that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whosoever believes in him, that's a condition. Salvation is conditional, not the offer. That is universal. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, but the actual salvation is conditional upon believing in the Son. God chooses man for salvation. It doesn't work the other way. We don't choose him. Christ is recorded saying, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that lasts. We don't choose. God chooses. And God only chooses those he knows in advance, his foreknowledge, will receive the gift of Jesus Christ and respond in love. So how can I say this if we go to the next? Peter, here, this is right from his first letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontius, blah, 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 blah. My translation doesn't use the word elect. It's those in God's foreknowledge. There it is. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification by the Holy Spirit, okay, for obedience to Christ, for the sprinkling of his blood. That's a good definition of salvation. Right there, in God's foreknowledge, he chose those he knew would respond in love. So, who is going to be saved by Jesus? How do we describe them? Jesus himself is quoted in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, of saying these critical words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Paul writes, interestingly, something similar in Romans 8.28. We all know that verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Oh. And then he later writes to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 1, right in, right in the first verse. And he describes the saints there, and this is from 1-1 from, from Ephesians, as those who are faithful in God. The saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ. So, those who do the will of my Father, those who love God and are called to his purpose, 
and those who are faithful in Christ. Those are the ones Christ's ministry applies to. Those are the ones who have a true second advent coming. So how do we trust in this advent? Again, do we go back to the evidence of the first advent? Can we rely upon that? And I think we've already discussed that. No. It was a mission, not evidence. How are we supposed to have the assurance that we want that this second advent is actually going to come to pass? By faith. Simple, plain faith. That's how. And where does this faith come from? Is it something internal to us? Is it, is it part of our DNA? Sadly, no. But it is the gift of God. And Paul writes us in the second chapter of Ephesians, and he says there, it is by grace you are saved, through faith and that not of yourselves, that no man can boast. It's the gift of God. The very faith you need to be part of that second advent is the gift of God right there on the screen. So this is the gift that alters our response to God's love on that cross from rejection, like many, to acceptance, like few. We respond only to God by faith in Christ. How do we pray? In the name of who? Jesus Christ. Everything we depend upon is in the name of Jesus. We show our trust and faith in God through faith in Christ. Now, it's nice that we have some historical evidence. That's good. But remember, evidence is limited to what it shows or tells. But faith, faith when tied to God is unlimited. I want to repeat that. Faith, when it's connected to God, is unlimited. And how can I make that statement? Well, if we go to the scene of Gabriel with Mary, and she's, she has no idea what's going to happen, and he lays out the plan of God, and in the midst of it she says, but how can this be? I'm not with a man. And the angel explains the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, that you will become pregnant, he will be the Son of God, and then Gabriel makes a remarkable statement. For, with God, nothing is impossible. Now, later on, that child Jesus grows to an adult, has a ministry, and in that ministry, he's teaching about wealth and the problems of wealth. And he tells his disciples, after the story of the rich young ruler, how it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they go, Lord, then it's impossible. And he says, yes, for man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Gabriel tells us nothing is impossible, and Jesus himself says all things are possible. Remember this. Faith, when tied to God, is unlimited. It has no bounds. You're the only restriction. Faith has no bounds. And the author of Hebrews gives us the perfect definition of faith. It's in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for. Our hope. 
we are assured of that very hope of this second advent through our faith. And it's also the conviction, the certainty of things unseen, the one who brings it. We never saw him, but we can be certain of him. Paul wrote to the Roman church. He writes in chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. There it is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty, the conviction of things unseen. And is this something we can attain to? Well, the second half of that verse talks about the men of old. Verse 2 says, the men of old believe this. They could, we can too. No problem. For by it the people of old received their commendation. If they can do it, we can do it. It's no problem. Now, gift of God not only does this, it also, this gift of faith will connect us to this, this hope, this perfection, because if we, as Abraham did, when he responded faithfully to God's command, what? To go. It doesn't say in the Bible God appeared to him. No, he just communicated, go. And Abram picked up everything and went. And God credited that faithful response as righteousness. Likewise, when we obey Christ and believe in him as the Son of God and are faithful to him, we too are credited with righteousness. We are God-approved. So that when the advent happens, when Christ reappears, we will be made perfect and found perfect before him, and the whole of creation will be made new. And you can believe it. So, what, what else can we gain from this faith? One more thing. This gift of faith can connect us and I think it's the only thing that will connect us to the reality of the hope of this second advent. And it also enables us to trust in God's word, literally in his word. And here on the screen are those literal words from the mouth of Jesus regarding his second advent. If I go and prepare a place for you, remember, he's sitting with the disciples. He's talking about his father's house, heaven, having a mansion, many rooms. And if I go to prepare one, he says, I will come again. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. There's the promise. There's the faith. It's the gift of God himself. You can believe it. So what does all of this mean for those of us who are love God and called by God, who do the will of God, who are faithful in Christ? What's the meaning for us? Well, as Stephen so faithfully says every week, we need to continue to repent. Repent. Confess our sins. Confess our sins to the Lord Jesus. We have nothing changes there. We need to confess our sins and trust in Jesus in our faith and have confidence, 
not if, when. Now, how about the unbeliever? What about an unbeliever? Well, I would ask an unbeliever, ask yourself this question. Am I one who will benefit from the second advent? Am I one who could truly be waiting for the hope of the second advent, experiencing the forgiveness and the completion of all things? And the answer to that is yes, if the condition. You cry out to him. Cry out to Jesus. Confess your sin and agree with Jesus about your sin. Acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and join this worldwide family of believers who are patiently and confidently waiting for this second hope of Messiah Jesus to come. It will be a truly blessed and the merriest of Christmases. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.